0: We're going to be in John 14 together this evening. John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 uh, to 14 together. The title of this sermon is going to be Six Promises to Comfort Troubled Hearts. Six Promises to Comfort Troubled Hearts. Why are we going to look at this first half of the chapter in that way? Because look at John chapter 14 verse 1 with me. This is in the Upper Room Discourse. This is the closest thing to real-time narrative that we get in the Gospels in an extended fashion. We have five chapters of the book of John covering just five hours or so of the life of Jesus with his disciples. The disciples, it is also beginning to dawn on them that Jesus is going to leave them. They do not yet understand exactly where he's going or exactly how he'll get there, but it's dawning on them that he's leaving, and so they are terrified. They are about to launch out into a mixed-up, difficult, painful, broken world, into a new stage of ministry, and they have more questions than answers. I think that we all are entering a brave new world as American society, you all, as a, as a church plant, are in a new season of ministry these last few years and looking forward to what God will do. And so I think there's a lot of parallels between where these disciples are as they listen to Jesus and where we are now, facing these, uh, this ever-changing culture in America, where we are in the history of our churches even, moving forward as church plants, as a newly merged church. And so this is a precious time. And Jesus, being sensitive, looking at the disciples, understanding them, moves almost immediately to comfort their troubled hearts. So look at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now look at the end of the chapter, toward the end of the chapter, down in verse 27. And Jesus says, even more emphatically, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I don't know many of you, in fact, I don't know most of you, but I know something about my own heart and human hearts in general. And I know that even as the body of Christ, as those that have come by repentance and faith to God through Christ alone, I know that many of you have come here this late afternoon with a heart that is at least partially troubled. So I want you to listen. I want you to hear how it is that Jesus comforts troubled hearts. Trouble here is from a word that means shaken it means stirred up it means unsettled it means thrown into confusion and that means that this is a wonderful chapter to return to filled with wonderful promises to cling to the next time your heart feels shaken by anything the next time your heart and mind are stirred up by circumstances And life, the next time you feel unsettled because of something in your family or marriage or at work or on the news or on your phone as you doom scroll, this is a term the young people have taught me. It's scrolling through social media. I don't even know the names of the platforms. I'm not as young and hip as Keith. He could tell you, but uh, I don't know. But uh, this is what people do. We get on social media, and with your thumb, you simply scroll a never-ending stream of doom. Why do we do this, Christians? We need to stand apart. Get on your Bible app and scroll endlessly, and there will be no doom. But when is it that your heart feels unsettled or that you are thrown into confusion? If you can watch the news now and not be confused by some of the things that are being said by our leaders and famous people... Well, then you're smarter than I am, because I don't understand a lot of what's being said. But what I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, is that when your heart is troubled, is shaken, stirred up, unsettled, thrown into confusion, Jesus is not upset. In fact, he moves toward you in that place and says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I want you to notice a few things as we get started. Troubled hearts are a fact of life. Troubled hearts are a fact of life. Even Jesus, back in John 13, 21, was troubled in spirit. Even Jesus in his humanity, John 13, 21, was troubled in spirit. And since troubled hearts are a fact of life, that's why God in his wisdom moved John to record this passage for us in the way that he did. John 16.33, I think of often where Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. I wonder what it is that troubles your heart, even this evening, or maybe in the last few years. I want you to see too that comfort for troubled hearts will not come through the world's means. Look at 14.27 again. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. To the degree that we turn to the world's brand of comfort, our hearts will remain troubled, and we ought to be afraid. The world can offer coping mechanisms at best, which only ever make things worse. The world can offer us a pep talk or a self-help book or some couch talk Therapy, but not comfort. And where do you turn for comfort when your heart is troubled? I want you to think about that before we turn to these six promises. Are you in a good habit of turning to the Lord through His Word for comfort for your heart? Are you holding on to some patterns that end up being not helpful? Feeling that I just need to vent, I just need to complain about this. I just need to, I need to send at least one angry tweet out to the world and then my heart will be a little less troubled about this. Or maybe there's even more damaging coping mechanisms that we're turning to. Where do you turn for comfort when your heart is troubled? Well, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to do something interestingly. He doesn't tell them to do something. He tells them to believe someone. He doesn't suggest therapeutic methods. He commands theocentric trust, God-centered trust. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Their comfort will not come from turning inward to seek understanding. Their comfort won't come from trying harder to fix the problem. Their comfort will come from trusting God and trusting Jesus. This is what he tells them at the outset of this passage. So Jesus' twin commands in 14.1, believe in God, believe also in me, create a contrast between troubled hearts and trusting hearts. The word believe here in the ESV, some argue would be better translated trust, trust in God, trust also in Jesus. The way to prevent or settle troubled hearts is not by doing something, but by believing someone, trusting the promises of the Father and the Son. Now you might say at this point, well, but I'm already a Christian. I believe in God. I believe specifically in Jesus, but my heart is still troubled, Pastor. Well, J.C. Ryle urges, never let us forget that there are degrees in faith, that there is a wide difference between weak and strong believers. The weakest faith is enough to give a man a saving interest in Christ and ought not to be despised. But it will not give a man such inward comfort as a strong faith. Vagueness and dimness of perception are the defects of weak believers. They do not see clearly what they believe and why they believe. In such cases, more faith is the one thing needed. Like Peter on the water, they need to look more steadily at Jesus and less at the waves and wind. Is it not written, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee? Isaiah 26, 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The opposite of a troubled heart is a trusting heart. The opposite of a troubled heart is a trusting heart. Those with troubled hearts should think less about doing something to ease their fear and more about trusting someone who has never feared. And here in John 14, 1 to 14, I want you to see six promises given by Jesus to comfort troubled hearts. And let me read these verses to you and I will pray one more time and we'll work our way through them. John chapter 14 We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do." that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help in understanding and further believing this great text, these words of your Son. Father, we all are the man who cried, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we do believe, and yet our faith is ever-growing. And, Father, the more clearly we understand who You are, understand Your character and Your work, understand the specific promises of Your Word, the more clearly we understand and trust, Father, then our faith grows and our hearts are strengthened. So, Father, we come before You humble and dependent today, We need Your work in us by Your Spirit to understand Your Word so that You can apply these truths to our lives and make us more like Your Son for Your glory. Father, we depend upon You for all of this. We pray that You would make us more like Christ today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Six promises. I think you could draw more. Out of this passage, but um, we'll content ourselves with six in these 14 verses this morning. And I want to start in John 14, verse 2. Look at verse 2. Jesus has just told them uh, not to worry, He's comforting their hearts. He tells them to believe in His Father and in Him, and He gives them this first incredible promise John 14, 2 In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? One scholar said Jesus never speculated about a future life. He spoke as one who is as familiar with eternity as one is with his hometown. The word house here can refer to a building or to a family or to both. Something like household is probably the sense here. If I asked you to describe your household, you'd tell me more about your family than your physical house. The word for rooms here in fact it's used only here and in verse 23 of this chapter and it means the place in which one stays. It has to do with dwelling. It looks more at where one lives. Merrill Tenney said the imagery of a dwelling place or rooms is taken from the ancient Near East household in which the sons and daughters have apartments under the same roof as their parents. I want you to understand this. I think it's important. Jesus wasn't describing here the physical realities of heaven in literal terms. He doesn't want us to envision houses or rooms. Heaven is a literal place, and we will live in a physical, renewed earth for all of eternity. But Jesus' goal here isn't to describe the the brick and mortar or timbers of physical buildings. He's stressing permanence and preparation. Our heavenly home won't be like the tabernacle that had to be torn down and moved from time to time. It'll be more like the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Our heavenly home uh, won't be like a tent we camp in, or even the brick and wood homes we live in now, which are constantly aging and needing repair and will someday be torn down. Our heavenly home is a permanent and unchanging home. And when Jesus ascended to the Father, he went with the names of all whose sins he'd paid for on the cross and secured their place, your place, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, your place in God's presence forever. That's what Jesus intends to picture. A permanent, prepared place for all who have trusted in Christ in the presence of the Father forever. Jesus isn't describing the arrangement of our eternal home, but the relational intimacy. In fact, the word translated rooms in modern translations was rendered mansions in the old King James, which was borrowed from Tyndale's earlier translation of a Latin word from which we get our word mansions. And since then, we've had uh, artwork and songs about just waiting for our mansion in the sky. But to say that misses the point, I think, by a mile. What Jesus is stressing is a prepared and permanent place with the Father forever. Unfortunately, as I say, this has led to a lot of strange envisionings. But the word translated mansions centuries ago and rooms now It's just the noun form of uh, the Greek word meno. It's the noun form of the word translated abide or remain or, or stay. It's a word used 10 times in the very next chapter of John when Jesus describes a life connected to God through Christ. So to take that word and translate it mansion so that when we envision heaven, we're thinking of the next step up in our accomplishment of the American dream is to abuse this text. We're not envisioning a bigger, better house. We're envisioning the unbridled joy of the presence of God forever. That's what Jesus wants us to envision. That's what he's stressing, is that when he went to the Father, having died for sin and raised again unto new life, he was (laughs) permanently securing, excuse me, a dwelling place in God's direct presence for all who believe in him. So the picture is one of eternal intimacy with God, living forever in His, the joy of His presence, not living in a mansion just over the hilltop. Is that how the old song lyric went? I'm sorry, Elvis, but you missed it. That's not it. We should be envisioning something far greater, and that's life in the Father's presence forever. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought the allergies were finally behind me. Apparently not. Let's look at a second promise to comfort troubled hearts. For you note-takers, you might write this for number one, Jesus is preparing a place for you. So when you envision your future, both near and long, let not your heart be troubled, because Jesus is preparing a place for you. But number two, Jesus will come again, and take you to be with him forever. Look at what he says in 14.3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is emphatic language. These are the promises of Jesus. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you, where? To myself that where I am, you may be also. In verse 3, Jesus makes it clear that in our heavenly home, we will never once feel alone or unloved. If you are God's child, Jesus will come again and will take you to be with him for all of eternity. And I stress that because I know from reading survey data that many people, more people now than ever, feel isolated, alone, lonely, and unloved. And all the circumstances of COVID didn't help that. And so levels of anxiety and depression and feelings of isolation are through the roof still. But I want you to hear the promise of Christ, the promise of Scripture in John fourteen three. Jesus will come again and take you to be with Him forever. Christian, we do not have to fear being alone. Listen to these promises, Psalm 23, 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Philippians 4, 4 and 5, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is at hand. Not your hearts be troubled. James 5.8 says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or later in this chapter, 14.23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation... And Jesus will come again and will take you to be with him forever. This is a promise from Christ himself. The word father, one writer points out, is used 53 times in the Upper Room Discourse. Heaven is my Father's house, according to the Son of God. It is home for God's children. An old hymn asked, who would mind the journey when the road leads home. I remember driving home long ago, around the year, oh, 99 or 2000 or so, from uh, Center City, Philadelphia, where I was going to college at the time, to um, the, the top of the state, northeastern Pennsylvania on the New York state border, and driving home through the Appalachian Mountains in a snowstorm. And all of a sudden, you know, 60 miles an hour turned into 50 to 30 to 20 and creeping up hills and sliding, and at one point, sliding off the road and having to get out and shovel the tires out and get help and get the car going again. And pretty soon, 8 o'clock is 10 o'clock, is midnight, and uh, a trip that normally took a few hours turned into quite a long and somewhat harrowing journey. Late into the night. But I kept going all the while thinking about home, and oh, what relief when I finally turned into the driveway, and I saw the candles in the window, the little electric candles that my mother always kept in the windows, still does to this day in the wintertime. When I made it up the driveway and walked into the front door and felt the warmth and smelled the familiar smells of home, my mind and body and spirit relaxed. Why? Because I was home. Because I was home. I was safe at home with those who loved me. I know that some of your hearts are troubled even today. Some of you come with burdens that you haven't shared with anyone. I know that many hearts are troubled in these times. Your way might be far, far harder than a snowstorm right now. But if you know Christ, brother or sister, you will get home. You will get home to our Father's house and it will be better, safer, warmer, more joyful, more comforting, more familiar than anything we can possibly imagine now with our fallen minds. I'm convinced that God has allowed us to enjoy a sense of home here and now to create in us a longing for our real home in God's presence that will be infinitely more joyful. J.C. Ryle again, he says, home, as we all know, is the place where we are generally loved for our own sakes, not for our gifts or our possessions. The place where we're loved to the end, never forgotten, and always welcome. This is one idea of heaven, he says. Believers are in a strange land in this life, in the life to come they will be at home. and the life to come, Christian, you will be at home. For the joy of home, for the joy of, of securing a place in his home for all of his followers, Jesus endured even the cross. Hebrews twelve two, And when we are finally home, we'll be able to see what Paul saw, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans eight eighteen. Home in heaven sounds wonderful, but the question is, how do I get from here to there? Jesus is preparing a place for you. Number two, Jesus will come again and take you to be with him forever. I want you to look now at a third promise in verses 4 to 6. And it is very simply, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas said, isn't getting it yet. So when Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going, he says, we don't even we don't know the destination, so we certainly don't have the directions. How can we start the navigation if you haven't given us the address? This is what he's saying in modern parlance. And Jesus answers that he is both the end point and the path. In fact, he's the final destination, the directions, and the vehicle that gets you there. Jesus is saying something like this. That's what he means by the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, Thomas, you're worrying for nothing. You see me, you have all that you need. Jesus begins his statement with two little words that nearly got him killed a few chapters ago in John 8. The words very simply, I am. It would be easy to read over those if you weren't a little more familiar with the Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life, but I am are loaded words, aren't they? This is how God revealed himself to Moses as the I am, the self-existent one. When Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Because they understood full well that he was using the divine name, the name of God himself, and claiming to be not just the Son of God, but God Himself. Jesus used this name to reveal himself as the Messiah in 428, as the bread of life, in 635 and 48 and 51, as the light of the world. I am the light of the world, 812 and 95, as the one who is from above, in 823, as the gate the sheepfold in 10, 7, and 9 as the good shepherd in 10, 11, and 14, and as the resurrection and life in eleven twenty five, And now he uses that same divine name and says that he is, I am, the way, the truth, and the life. This is a very direct and comprehensive statement. Jesus was not one to mince words. The disciples' hearts are troubled and that distress leads to confusion because they are human. And just like you and I, the more troubled we get, the harder it is to make sense of the task before us. Has that ever happened to you? When your heart is depressed or anxious or sad or in some other way troubled, do you ever find that you're also a bit more confused? That sometimes it's harder to know exactly what to do in this situation when your heart is weighed down with grief or pain or some other trouble? Find it harder to make Good decisions. Many people find it harder even to read and understand scripture when their hearts become very troubled. The disciples' minds are confused in part because their hearts are so troubled. So Jesus points as clearly and simply as he can to the solution for their troubled hearts. And it is him. And it is him. One writer explained Jesus' solution to perplexity is not a recipe, it is a relationship with Him. He is the way to the Father because only He has an intimate knowledge of God unmarred by sin. He is the truth because He has the perfect power of making life one coherent experience, irrespective of its ups and downs. He is the life because he was not subject to death but made death subject to him and so in jesus we have the way the truth and the life it's as though jesus is saying when your hearts are particularly troubled as they are right now don't overcomplicate things come to me believe me i am god trust in me jesus is saying back in john 14:1 right I am the way to the Father, the only way. I am the truth that you need, all the truth. I am the way of life, the guarantee of life, and the eternal life. Friends, when your hearts are troubled, trust in Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. I find that the deeper someone's pain when they're talking to me, the simpler I need to be in answering them from the Scriptures. What I have found by trial and error, mostly doing things wrong, and thinking that my job as a pastor is to be deep and wise and share great and wonderful truths from the Word. And you know, as a young man, you do these things. It's probably pride and ego, frankly. But as you get older and you get over yourself and you look to Christ, what I've realized is that the more pain someone is in, the more they need for me to simply affirm the basic truths of the gospel from the word. They need for me to point them to Christ again and to his love, to the cross and to the resurrection, to God's omnipotence displayed in Christ on their behalf. His ability to forgive their sins and to hold them forever and to heal them in time. Christian, maybe you're here and your heart is deeply, deeply troubled. I want to encourage you to look to Christ. Come again and do a a fresh study, maybe of the book of John. You say, Pastor, I'm so down right now. I'm hurting so much. It's hard to do much of anything. I understand. I would urge you to start a fresh and simple study of the book of John. Take a chapter a day. And read it slowly and prayerfully and underline that single verse that stands out most to you. Do that for a month and at the end of the month start over. And let the truth about Christ from the Word of God begin to heal and comfort your troubled heart. Now at the mention of the Father, Philip says, oh, the Father, okay. Then Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be okay. But we want the big picture, Jesus, We want theology proper. Show us the Father. Look at this. Look at verses 7 to 9, and we're going to get our fourth promise here, and it is simply that Jesus reveals the Father. Look at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. (laughs) Now we think this way. Don't we? We would love to see the clouds parted and see more clearly Father and Son and Spirit and, and understand these things. And Philip says, oh, that would do it, Jesus. You're going away. You're leaving us here on your own with this helper you're speaking about. Just show us the Father and we'll be okay. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Knowing here doesn't mean being aware or even understanding the truth of something. To know, as John uses it here and as it often is used in Scripture, means to have a personal experiential relationship with. Knowing here means more than having a mental understanding of something or even giving some assent to it. It refers to an experience. It seems incredible that weak, sinful humans could know personally and intimately the omnipotent, holy creator. Listen, one expositor wrote, 400 years before Christ was born, the Greek philosopher Plato wrote, to find out the father and maker of all this universe is a hard task. And when we have found him, to speak of him to all men is impossible. But Plato was wrong. We can know the Father and Maker of the universe. For Jesus Christ revealed Him to us. This expositor says, Why should our hearts be troubled when the Creator and Governor of the universe is our own Father? I've taught our children over the years when we are in a situation and you are nervous, don't look over at that situation. You look up at me. And if I'm not nervous, you don't need to be nervous. And they've done this over the years. I've seen this in public, especially when they're little and holding my hand and there's a disturbance and they look up at me. And if I smile and keep walking, then they smile and keep walking. Oh, how wonderful to know that it is God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who is our Father and a better Father than any earthly father has ever been. And if we are walking with Him, why would we be nervous? John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. When commentator says to the extent that the disciples had come to a satisfactory understanding of Jesus, they had a comprehension of the being of God. And we have many questions about God and the way He works in the world and in our lives and in eternity. But when our hearts are troubled and when we need a deeper understanding of God, we need to look to Christ. Because what we see in Christ is true of the Father. Because when we see Christ, we are seeing the Father perfectly displayed. Michael Reeves is a theologian that I appreciate And he's written powerfully on this topic. And I'm going to read to you a somewhat lengthy quote here. Michael Reeves says, as a child, I used to have an almost physical reaction to the word of God. To the the word God, rather. The name of God. To me, he says, it was a sharp-edged word that cut through all others. When it was spoken, I felt both searched and unsettled. Now, I knew enough to understand why the uttering of that word should make me feel searched. God, I realized, was high and holy. I was not. I found myself interested in heaven, interested in salvation, even interested in Jesus, but not attracted to God, he writes. I longed to escape hell and go to heaven, but God's presence was not the inducement. He was not attracted to the thought of being near God the Father. Quite the opposite. I would have been far more comfortable with a godless paradise. At the same time, I loved the idea of justification by faith alone, but couldn't quite believe it. For quite simply, God did not strike me as being that kind. He continues, after quoting Athanasius on this subject, Athanasius showed this struggling, God-weary sinner that there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Let me say that again, Christian. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. In the Son of God, we see all the perfections of God blazing forth. And we see them, the love, the power, the wisdom, the justice, and the majesty of God, all defined so differently from our sinful expectations. In the Son of God, we do not see a haughty God, reluctant to be kind. We see one who comes in saving grace while we were still sinners. In Him, we see a glory so different from our needy and selfish applause-seeking. We see a God of super-abundant self-giving We see a God unspotted in every way, a fountain of overflowing goodness in Him, and in Him alone we see a God who is beautiful, who wins our hearts. I think that Michael Reeves, Dr. Reeves, has nailed this, has hit the nail on the head. If you, like me at times in my life, have struggled to picture God the Father, (laughs) well, stop trying to outside the Gospels. Come to the Gospels and look and see the Father and flesh. See God incarnate. See Almighty God walking among us in the person of God, the Son of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah. There is no God in heaven who is different from Christ as we see Him in the Gospels. Okay, you say, I'm ready to believe in God and believe in Jesus and serve God's glory in this mixed up world. But how can I do that? How can I do that? It's very hard to live against the grain. Let me give you a fifth promise we'll look at just briefly in verses 10 to 12. Jesus works powerfully in and through his followers. Jesus works powerfully in and through his followers. And given the challenges that some of you face this week and this month in your home and job and and ministry unto others, you need to know this. Listen, starting in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, these three verses would take at least one full sermon to do any justice to. (laughs) Keep the smiling. These are loaded verses. I want to simply say this. Jesus mentions his Works, his miraculous works that the Father did through Him as proof that He is in the Father and the Father in Him and that He therefore reveals the Father. But then, at the mention of those works, He says something shocking. First, He says that the disciples will do the same kind of works that He has done. They are wondering, Jesus, how will we live for you in a world this broken where Christians are being put on pikes and lighting the road to the Colosseum and thrown to the lions? Houses stolen, put in jail, property taken. How will we serve you without you here in this crazy world? Jesus said, just remember our three years together. Remember everything that you saw me do understand that you will do these same kinds of works, then he ups the ante. First he says they will do the same kind of works that he has done, then he ups the ante and says that they will do greater works than these. We don't have time today to flesh out exactly how and why. I just want you to hear this as a promise that Jesus works powerfully in and through his followers in all of the myriad ways that you need to be at work this week in the lives of those around you. Paul said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. When your heart is troubled, do you ever feel powerless or helpless or stuck? Jesus will go on to promise them that he will send them a helper specifically, the Holy Spirit, to live within them, meaning to empower them with his own power to do the things that God has called them to do, to act in the very situations that are troubling their hearts in the first place. Here's a, a sixth and final promise. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus answers all prayers in his name to glorify the Father. Verses like these make us almost uncomfortable. You see, as those with uh, deeper theology, we have spent so long repudiating uh, the prosperity gospel, um, the the damnable teaching that God's will for us is to be uh, uh, healthy and wealthy and rich, etc. We've spent so long attacking that doctrine, rightfully so, That we're almost uncomfortable now to come and affirm these soaring promises of God's Word. That when God seeks to glorify Himself, there is no prayer that God won't answer. All prayers in line with God's glory, He answers. All prayers that are according to His will, He answers. This is incredible. Look at John 14, 13, and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And he says again, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But Jesus, what about these situations that are so troubling our hearts He says, I will be at work within you to do even greater things than you've seen me do. And you will come and pray to me by that same Spirit. By the way, as he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And when you pray to me to accomplish my Father's will in your life and the lives of others, for his glory I will answer your prayers. This is powerful and necessary. Number six, Jesus answers all prayers in his name to glorify the Father. As I say, we almost hesitate to believe this promise, don't we? But just because some have ripped these promises out of context and abused them to say things that Scripture never said, let us not forget these promises altogether. We must not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Listen, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And James wrote in James 5, 16, 17, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And that's a verse in the New Testament. That doesn't belong deep in the Old Testament where axe heads are floating and seas are parting. We say, well, it's been a long time since we've seen miracles like that, Pastor. This is the book of James. And God is promising to answer prayers according to His will and for His glory. Why were they so confident about God's desire to answer prayer, these writers? Because Jesus had said, Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. And he also says in John fourteen thirteen and 14 again, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, two facets of these prayers Jesus promises to answer are often cited as, as limitations to what we might pray for. I've read more than one scholar say, now there are limitations to what we might pray for. Jesus promises to answer those prayers that are in his name and which will glorify his Father, and this is certainly true. It'd be a waste of time to ask God to do something that dishonors the name of Christ or robs God of his glory, but that's common sense. This keeps us from asking God to fulfill selfish desires, and we understand that. But I hate to call these two things limitations. Jesus promises to answer all prayers offered in His name that glorify His Father. Let that sink in. That is not a limitation. If our deepest desire becomes the exaltation of Jesus' name for the glory of God the Father, and this is what we pray for, then we can be absolutely certain that God will answer those prayers. If what we are begging God to do is to exalt the name of His Son among us for His glory... And our joy is He makes us more like Christ and we can be certain that God is hearing and answering these prayers. That is not a limitation. God wants nothing more and we benefit from nothing more than God being glorified as Jesus' name as celebrated among us. Our problem is not that we ask for too much, brothers and sisters. Our problem is that we settle for too little of the manifestation of God's glory among us as He exalts the name of Christ. But more to the point of these verses in context, because Jesus is speaking, as I showed you, verse 1, verse 27, he's speaking to them about comforting their troubled hearts. Jesus believes that there is no trouble of our heart, no matter how severe, that cannot be helped by prayer. So we come to the Father and pray in the name of the Son. There is no problem that we face, no trouble of our heart, that we cannot come to with boldly before the throne of grace and know that we will receive help with. When your heart is troubled to the breaking point, cry out to God to settle your heart through Christ. Joseph Scriven was an Irish poet and tutor and preacher in the 1800s. As a young man, his fiancée drowned the night before their wedding. Later in life, another fiancé died of pneumonia. He struggled late in life with severe depression. His heart was often troubled. And so it was by experience that he learned where to find comfort for a troubled heart. So when his mother fell seriously ill, he wrote a poem for her called Pray Without Ceasing. Years later, that poem was put to music and renamed What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And Millions of Christians have been reminded, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Meaning, oh, what trouble we hold on to longer than we need to. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Christian, what is it that's troubling your heart this week or this last month? Have you been taking that to the Lord in prayer daily? Will you this week? Philippians 4, 6, and 7, of course, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, Prayer crowns God with the honor and glory due his name, and God crowns prayer with assurance and comfort. The most praying souls are the most assured souls, he says. Surely this is why Jesus includes this incredible promise about God's delight in answering prayers. Jesus wants to comfort the disciples' troubled hearts So he reminds them that they can pour out their troubles before God, who hears and cares and is all-powerful in answering the prayers of his children according to his will for his glory. This has been a troubling few years for many people for a lot of reasons, and some of your hearts have been deeply troubled by personal struggles in addition to those that all Americans have felt. Brother or sister, if your heart is troubled, I want you to spend time praying about and asking God to strengthen your understanding of and your trust in these six promises from John 14, 1 to 14. Jesus is preparing a place for you right now. If your faith is in him, Jesus will come again and take you to be with him forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus reveals the Father perfectly. Jesus works powerfully in and through his followers, including in the circumstances that are troubling your heart now. And Jesus answers prayers in his name to glorify the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that this week, You would further convince our minds of these truths as by your Spirit you help us to understand them and and by your Spirit, again, you apply them to our lives. Father, would you make us more like Christ in so doing? And would you comfort the troubled hearts of those who are here? We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.